text for this morning will be taken from Psalm 73. I, uh, summer times are often fun uh, because it's an opportunity, and one of our patterns is often to look at various psalms throughout the summer, which are, are, are tremendously authentic expressions of, of the faith, although because it's written uh, in ancient Hebrew poetry, it sometimes can get lost on us. We you know, it becomes more like, I feel like, some one of my uh, junior high uh, English assignments, having to, you know, dissect a poem and, you know, tell all, about all sorts of technical things. And, and we miss the just the, the, just the raw expression that is often in, uh, in the Psalms. And when we do hear it, we are amazed, or I'm always amazed, at just how practical it is that people are the same today as they were at the time that the Psalms are written. Our passage this morning, beginning in verse 1, Psalm 73, hear the word of our God. Truly the Lord is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people, God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands with innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall, make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works." the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come before you this time, we come now honoring you by giving our ear to your word, 
and our hearts prepared to receive whatever it is that you, by your Spirit, would speak. Uh, use the messages I, I bring to, to prick uh, the conscience, um, to hear the Spirit, uh, that we may be shaped by this word, by the experience of a brother who's gone far before us. We may identify, we may learn, we may be shaped even as we are encouraged, that we may walk with you and find the joy that he did in your presence. To you, our God, be all glory here now in every day of our life and through all eternity. We pray through Christ, our Redeemer, our King. Amen. And sometime in 1817, a mysterious, attractive young woman surfaced on the shores near Bristol, England. And she wore ragged clothes that were soaking wet. She was wearing a, a turban, and she was speaking a language that was unintelligible to the baffled locals. They brought in scholars from the nearby university that were studied in various languages. They were trying to place where she might be from. They were trying to piece together words that sounded like those that they may have heard, but they were unable to communicate with her. She attempted to mime uh, certain things, and they were able to, uh, to get some basic communication uh, until a Portuguese sailor who had traveled the seas uh, came and said that he was able to understand her dialect. And as she expressed herself both through word and through her, her, her miming, uh, he explained to them that she was actually uh, the daughter of a king of a South Pacific area, uh, island known as Javasu, that she was a princess. Her name was Caribou, Princess Caribou. She had been kidnapped from her family and then sold by the pirates who had kidnapped her uh, into, uh, into slavery. And that as she was being transported for, uh, somewhere in, to Europe, uh, she had jumped overboard. She had swum the, uh, the, swam the uh, English Channel, or not the entirety of it, but in the, the rough seas of the English Channel, somehow had walked some, found herself uh, along the river, and then had come ashore uh, near Bristol, England, on the, near the River Avon. Her, her story captured the imagination of certainly the region and began to spread throughout all of England. People were just fascinated with this, this young princess. And as her story was told more and more, and was kept first told by the newspaper writer in Bristol, England, and picked up by uh, newspapers in London, which as her story became more known, uh, then her end also began to unravel. Because a woman reading the newspaper in, from, the, from London recognized not only the story, but the artist's sketch and came and said that this woman was not the princess from some South Pacific seas, but she had been born a peasant and had been in her employ. She was born to a cobbler in their own exotic town uh, in England, uh, and her name was Mary Baker. She had been outed. And, and she carried this on for several months, and so the story, uh, Time Magazine named it as one of the top 10 hoaxes of all time. It's been turned into a, a movie. Carolyn and I watched it uh, recently uh, by Phoebe Cates. I'd recommend it to you, but I just spoiled the plot right now, didn't I? Uh, so you already know the end of it. But, you know, the, the story captures the imagination. And so when I, when I hear the story, when I, when I watch the movie, several thoughts uh, come to, to mind. But inevitably, 
it, it lands on, on these questions. Do I ever present myself to be something other than I really am? And in what ways do I try to present myself as something other? And how often do I present myself as something other than I really am? Now, I, I felt good coming away from that, thinking, well, at least I, I've never tried anything to the extent of that's going to make the top 10 frauds of all time. I'm not going to be a, a Princess Caribou level of, of, of a fraud. But I have to acknowledge that it's a very, a very common, far more than I care to think and, and to admit, uh, is that I am so tempted and do present myself as something other than I, uh, than I am. And I suspect that I'm not alone in that. And when I say that, I don't have in mind the, the you know, the, the normal conversations of day. You know, you walk into 7-Eleven, they say, how are you this morning? He's really not asking for you to go into the great details of your life. How are you this morning? You know, you just go in for, but he's just, I'm going to sell you, you know, whatever, a Pop-Tart. And you say, well, things could be better. My dog died. I, you know, I had to go to you know, the doctor's appointment. They don't care. And even as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of, you know, the, the truth in what Hall of Fame football coach from Notre Dame and previously from William & Mary, Lou Holtz, had once said. He said, don't go tell people your problems. 80% of the people don't care, and 20% are just glad you've got them. I mean, there is a truth in that. And so I'm not talking about these superficial uh, relationships where it really doesn't matter, but I'm talking about people that are within your relational sphere, people within your orbit, people within your own family, people within your own church. I've been part of a church for the church for a, a long time. And while the church should be the very place where we are free to be ourselves, the reality is for most people, the church is the last place they want to be open. The last place they want to come clean. The last place that they want to just let people see who they really are. And that is sad. It's sad because we feel that way, and it's sad because my guess is most of us have been given reason to feel that way, if not from our own experience, but observing how other people who are going through struggles are at times treated, even in the church of Jesus Christ. And so I, I understand, and, and there is a very real temptation, and maybe even a very real pressure in the church to always put on a face, to always appear to have things, if not altogether, on the way to having things altogether. If not always happy, always aware that happiness is, is nearby. And we all sew it up because of, for the sake of our, our witness for Christ, because you know nobody wants to be around the ERs of this life, right? So, if we're ever going to spread the hope of the gospel, you know, we've got to send a message to people who are miserable, uh, come be like us. The reality is, is, and pretend not to be miserable, ever. Now, I realize some of that is a, is a, a bit harsh, and I'm not speaking of our church in particular, but to think that we would be immune to that, or anybody would walk in here and be immune to that feeling that they, they need to put on the bright face. I think would be naive because we, like everyone else, are broken people. And a place with broken people functions in broken ways. Uh, 
But it's because of this reality that I love the Psalms, and this Psalm in particular, which is one of my favorites. Because in this Psalm, we, we, we hear from a, a man who knows that temptation, that pressure to present a certain face, and at the same time, he writes for us a psalm, a, a song that God honored by putting it within his Psalter, that people from every generation would be able to read. And in his song, he peels back the curtain and we get to see what's really going on in his heart. And we get to see his thought process and we get to see the reasons for the angst that he is experiencing. And we get to see the process that he goes through to move from his time of call it spiritual depression to restoration, to joy, and to hope in God that is not only his, but belongs to you and to everyone who trusts in God's grace because of the goodness of our God. He begins with a statement that you would expect. The writer of the psalm is a, a man named Asaph, and he, he is a, 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 uh, one of the priests that serve the temple. And Asaph, in particular, is a, uh, is a worship leader. He is a musician. He, that's his, his task. And he is not only a musician and a worship leader, but he is a gifted songwriter. Chris Tomlin will never top him, no matter how many songs he gets put on the charts. Chris Tomlin may have more, but Asaph has several of the songs he wrote that are in the scriptures. Chris Tomlin will just get in the best of the 90s and the, you know, year 2000s. But Asaph's words, Asaph's songs are, are recorded for us. And, and so he, this, this, is, this is who he is. And so if you know that about him, you're not surprised by the first words that, that he writes here. Truly God is good. I mean, what else would you expect somebody like Asaph to say? I mean, he's a worship leader, um, you know, I mean, and I got to be honest, I mean, I have, I usually put our liturgy together and I can't remember the last time, if I ever have, you know, had our call to worship. You know, life's just rough. Let's worship. I know I don't do that either. We don't do that. We, we turn our orientation to, to God and, and to the nature and goodness of God. We are not surprised by what he has to say here. But just because we're not surprised and just because we very quickly turn a corner and get somewhere else, we don't need to pass over these words too quickly. Because as we look through this psalm, one of the things that we're going to see is this theological statement is really the, is really the, the anchor. It is the, the, the point around which his hope, his joy, his restoration revolves. He knows that God is good. And that comes the foundation of his joy. Theologian J.I. Packer has said that those who know God have great thoughts of God. God is good. A.W. Tozer, taking it a step further, said, what comes to our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And so I ask you this question rhetorically. What comes to your mind when you think of God? 
Do you know God as he has revealed himself fully in, in the scriptures? And are you growing in your knowledge of what he has revealed himself to be? What you think of God is not only what is most important about you, but what you think of God will shape the way that you relate to God, relate to this world, and live your life in this world. And so we can't skip over that. He begins with a true statement. Truly, God is good to Israel, to the people of God, to those who are pure in heart, which would be nice, but most of us are not pure in heart. But, you know, I, I think Asaph is using that in a, in a general term. Those who are pure in heart are those who want to relate to God, or those that he has in mind. And so he begins there. Truly, God is good. But then he turns the corner. And he turns it rather sharply. We see the very next statement, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. This is a contrast. I know God is good, but then here's where I am. Now, the words that he's using are, are poetic, which, again, you would expect in a song. They're, they're poetic, and they bring to mind uh, what we see uh, a re- re- recurring theme throughout all of the Scripture, uh, which is this idea that our relationship to God as we live in this world is likened to a walk or to a, a journey. And so the words that he's using here, uh, bringing that idea to mind that, you know, God is good, and then he's on this journey, and on his journey, he said, but I almost stumbled. My feet almost slipped. In other words, he became disconnected from the foundation that is necessary for him to walk through this word. I, I paraphrase this as saying, you know, here's, here's really what he was expressing here. I know God is good, but I don't care. He's disconnected from that theological reality. And I stop there and I ask you this question. Have you ever felt that way? Do you feel that way now? It's not a trick question. I ask that question because I want you to truly examine your own heart now or look back in your past. And I suspect if your answer is no, I've never felt that way and no, I'm not feeling that way now, unless the Lord's going to take you home in the next couple of weeks, chances are that will come. And I suspect for many of you who would say no, and and you're being honest about that, I, I do wonder whether you're actually being even honest with yourself. Do you know that you can even say something as audacious as what Asaph is saying here? I know God is good. I don't care. There are some scholars who would look at this and commentators as I looked at, and they're, they're attaching this statement as him now going back, like a flashback to the time before his conversion. And certainly that kind of thing might be true is, okay, God is good, but I live my life in this way. There was a time when I didn't care. But I don't think that's what Asaph is saying. Uh, the reason that I don't think that, that is what Asaph is saying is because of what he says in verse 15. You see a description of, uh, of you know, his focus and, and the reasons that he had this attitude um, in, in the following verses, uh, but in, in verses 4 through 12. Uh, but when you get to verse 15, again, remembering who this guy is, he's the worship leader in the church. He's to bring people into God's presence. He has a responsibility to lead people into God's presence, and, and yet he's feeling quite the opposite of, of worship, even though his the- theology is still sound. But in verse 15, he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. 
And so I, I read that, and, and I, I believe what he's saying is, look, I know God is good. I don't feel it. I don't care right now. Now, I, I know that what I feel is not what is real, because God is good whether I feel like it or not. And because of the position that I hold, I know that if I was to get up and, you know, and say what I'm feeling, then I would be leading this generation that you've entrusted to me to, to lead spiritually you know, they would start thinking, well, maybe God is not good. So he's kind of stuck. And so you see that here's a guy who understands what it's like to feel something and then feel that in God's, uh, in presence of God's people, he, he can't show what he really is feeling, except he writes it down. And God said, that's great. I'm going to show this to everybody for uh, the rest of eternity. So he didn't disclose it particularly well. But as I, I look at that, this is not somebody who's looking back and saying, you know, there was a time in my life and then I became a Christian and now God is good and everything has been great ever since. This is the guy who in the midst of life, knowing that God is good, knowing the need to encourage other believers in Christ, is feeling detached from the reality of his theological beliefs. Well, we didn't coin the phrase Around here, we call that the difference between our confessional faith and our functional faith. In other words, there is a faith that we confess, things that we say, this is what we believe, and this is what we revolve around. This is, this is our hope, all of which comes from the Scripture. And yet, day to day, moment by moment, we are disconnected from what we believe to be true emotionally. And that can happen in any number of ways. Here are some of the most vivid, at least from my own experience. Like Asaph, I know God is good. I also believe God is all-powerful. I believe God when, as he wrote through the Apostle Paul in Romans, that he's working out all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, and I love the Lord, and I want to do what God wants to do. And so here we have God who's working out all things that are for the good. God is able to make happen whatever it is that he wants to happen, and God is, is very good. And yet, I have moments and days of anxiety. Well, if God is good and God is in control and he's working all things out for my good, why in the world would I be anxious about anything? I mean, what God is working out is ultimately what is good. It's good for his glory, it's good for me, good for people who are around me. So what is the point of being anxious? Well, there is a disconnect between what I know and what I am feeling at any given time. For those of you who are prone to worry, same thing. God is either working out his purpose or he's not. It's not that you don't believe that, at least, you know, it, what do you believe? But at that moment, you're disconnected from what it is that you're professing to believe. We can become disconnected in any number of ways. And Asaph seems to be a guy who is disconnected. And I believe that not only because of what he says in verse 15, I believe that because as I look at this passage, I can identify with that. I believe that because it's my experience. I know God is good, but you know what? Sometimes I don't care. And if I was to stand up in this pulpit and tell you that, you know, then I'd betray all of you kind of thing. Except in this context right now, it's important that you know that it's not just my brokenness and my flawed I share it with Asaph and with many others, and I share it with many of you. And I think it's important that we understand that God is not saying, 
come back when you've had an attitude adjustment. Our God, who is incredibly gracious and is incredibly loving, has loved Asaph even through his feeling distant from God. And our God loves you even when you may be feeling distant from him. Now, it might be helpful for us also to see what it is that caused the shift in Asaph. And we see that in verses 4 through 12. He gives a, a, a list of things. We, we see him for, he, 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 verse 3 kind of gives the overview. I was, env- I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he gives these descriptive terms of what he believes is happening to the people who are choosing to not only ignore, but defy the standards of God. They have no pangs until death. In other words, they just feel like, you know, there's nothing bothering them until they get to the point that they might die, that they're almost to die. Their bodies are flat and sleek. I guess fat was good in that day. So, um, you know, they're not in trouble as others are, and they're not stricken like the rest of mankind, and therefore pride is their necklace. In other words, they're just so proud of the way that they live, even though it's in defiance of God. And they wear it like a bling. And, and, and then he says their eyes swell through their fatness. They, they scoff. They speak with malice. They threaten oppression. In other words, they, they don't like the people who are trying to say, but this is what God said. This is, I'm trying to live the way that, that God would have me to live. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. And then here's what certainly has to get him, and it would get anyone who's in, involved in ministry. It would get any parent who is... Um, you know, seeing their own children going after they've been trying to raise them in, in, the, the, um, in the truth of God. And then these people who are anti-God come along and somehow even those who you love start listening and, and following them, thinking, you know, that's, I like that. I want my life to be like theirs. And we see the emotion because what Asaph says after looking at all of this stuff of the, of the, of the prosperity of, of the wicked, he says, you know, I've been good for nothing. I've been trying to keep the, and walk the way God wants me to walk and I feel like a failure. I feel like wasting my time. I feel like God's not honoring that because they're the ones that are getting rich. They're the ones that are popular. They don't seem to be feeling the rejection. And so, for nothing, I've kept my way pure. Again, I ask you this. Have you ever felt that way? We see some very real feelings in this man of God at this point in his story is a man of God in position but not in emotion. He's frustrated. He's bitter. He's angry. He feels that God is distant. He hasn't changed and given up on his theological foundations. He's not saying that what I feel is defining God, but he's, he's explaining the experience that none of us want but all of us have had. And, and the short of it is, his reason is because he's looking at, at the wicked. And, and that may be true for you. You may be looking at those who are 
um, living their lives or, or, or anti what God wants in the culture, and it may be incredibly frustrating. I, I could you know, kind of zoom out a little bit and summarize it in another way. You may be feeling that right now just because you're paying attention to the news, which is where you see some of these stories, or it may be because of you know, just the weariness of life. And, and right now, the temptation for many, because I'm hearing it, is to be weary and wondering what's going on and why am I doing all these things uh, just because we've, we've just come through a season and, you know, now we're hearing hints that we may be going back into a season where put the masks back on and, and distance from one another. And, you know, are we going to go through those two weeks again? And I guess as a day is a thousand years for the Lord. The government decided in that way they would copy God. Two weeks became 18 months. This is a very wearying thing. And my reason for bringing this up is because I, I want you to be able to be honest with God about what's going on. And I look at this passage and saying, you know, maybe we can learn what are the triggers in our own lives that lead us to feel this way. And to encourage you and to remind me that when we are feeling this way, that we don't need to be alone. In fact, the reason this is in here is so that we are not alone that we recognize this is a common experience. We don't need to hide ourselves from everybody. That whatever it is that is happening, whatever it is that we see that might be happening in the world, God's people are in this together. And our experience doesn't change the reality that God is good. And we see that Asaph tells us this because there's a shift that takes place in this passage He's vented, he's expressed himself in his frustration and the reasons for his frustrations. And then he picks up even, even more. He says in verse 16, something that most of us can understand. When I thought to understand this, it seemed too wearisome a task. In other words, when I'm trying to think, why am I feeling this way? And what do I really believe? And But why is God, you know, those questions, it seems evident that the answers to the questions he had were not coming to him. And so he's just feeling weary. He's weary of life. He's weary of the world. He's weary of trying to think through these things. He is just worn out emotionally. He's not in a healthy emotional place. And when we're not in a healthy emotional place, oftentimes we are also not in a healthy spiritual place. Not always. We see examples Job being an example of clinging to my only hope is God. I know that, I know that Jesus is my only hope in life and in death. And, you know, and so there's, there's times where we may be down. And I also want to be very clear here, too. Not all emotional depression is spiritual depression. There's other reasons, chemical, um, you know, there, there's, just, there's a number of things. And so I don't want to reduce every part of that. But a lot of our depression is because of our disconnect from God, our disconnect from what we believe to be true about God, disconnect from what is true about God. And here's an example of a man who, was, who is, is testifying to that through this particular song. But in verse 17, he says this, you know, I was weary because I didn't have the answers in verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned therein. There's a turning point. 
what we need to see in here is honesty and authenticity is vitally important for our, our spiritual help. And yet it's the orientation to that foundational truth that he declared at the very beginning, which is, I know God is good. And he goes through times where he knows it, but he doesn't feel it. And yet there is a, there's, there's a turning point. In his case, he says, when I went into the sanctuary. Now for Asaph, I suspect that was a literal sanctuary. Why? Because that's where he worked. That was his job. That's what he did. He was hanging out in the sanctuary, whether, you know, playing his piano, his lyre, or whatever, composing new songs on, a, you know, his keyboard, you know, playing, I don't know what other, maybe he was a drummer. He, um, you know, he was probably there. And God met him, whether it was in the context of worship, which uh, is what a lot of commentators are suggesting. And it is really what the worship is designed for. Worship is for us to engage God who has invited us to hear. And as he blesses his people, we are renewed in his grace. We're renewed in the covenant that he's laid out. And so it would make sense that God would meet him at, in, in the midst of worship. But in his case, it may have just been some place that he got away. In this, and he was away from everybody, and it was just him and God, and he was honest like he is here, and God broke through. The Spirit broke through. And part of what it did, that it was the breakthrough, was not that God was absent and finally just showed up, but God finally broke through his funk, his focus on the world and the wickedness, and he says, I remembered their end. In other words, I remembered what God has said, and I realized that God is in control. And, and what I'm seeing all around me right now in the wicked seeming to prosper or the bad news seeming to overwhelm all the good news, the things that make me weary, it's not that those things are, are, are not true in a sense in this world, but they are not ultimately true because God who is in control, who is also very good, he's already told us all this is going to happen in this world because people follow their own desires, their own designs. They twist the word, but God is still in control. And the way that he says that world and history is going to flow, that's the way it's going to flow. And so Asaph had this whole new perspective as he's looking at God and he's hearing God's promises. He now was open to that and realizing it wasn't that God was doing nothing. He was working out his purposes. And he remembered that God throughout all of history and there had always been times of difficulty, always been times where God's people seemed to have been ignored or abandoned, but God was always working this purpose out and always delivers his people. All of that came to his mind at this. And so what we see in the last verses here is the reorientation of his emotions around the truth of God's nature and God's promise, which now is the primary object of his attention. So what we see in this passage, I believe, is that a lot of our funk comes because we're focusing far too much on the wicked and, and, and the world and the news instead of on God and his grace, what he has done through redemptive history and what he has promised to do in this world and in the lives of his church, his people. And we see that he summarizes things at the end because there is a tremendous transformation because in verse 23, you know, I am continually with you. Well, he actually kind of looks at his own heart. And so in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and I was ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In other words, he was responding on his own instinct, only in his own circumstances. And that's what he was taking before God. And we get a hint here that here's a guy who went before God and he didn't just write this out and he didn't go just to the person next door, but he took this, his discontent to God. And God didn't reject him. God renewed him. He said, yeah, as I look back at that point, I, I, you know, the things that I said, the things that I thought, the things that I raised up in, in lamentation and prayer to you, I was just, I was, I was like a brute. I was like a beast, an animal just kind of going with, with the instinct. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And you're the one who holds my right hand, kind of the, the father holding the child. 
You guide me with your counsel. He's given us his word so that we know how to navigate this life in prosperity and in, in difficulty. And, and then the end, and afterwards, you will receive me to glory. And so he's not just saying, okay, you know what? Life stinks, but one day I'll go to heaven and just, you know, the, you know, the by and by and fly away kind of stuff. He's saying, you're with me now, and I know how the story ends. And, and this begins a transformation. And now we see an incredible, an incredible devotion coming from one who has been in the pits and now in his spirit is oriented toward the heavens. Whom have I in heaven beside you? He's not saying he had no friends, no family that have preceded him in death and are already, you know, awaiting. He's saying, you know, as much as I love them, as much as they love me, compared to you, God, no one. And then he goes on, and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. It's not that he doesn't want anything, but he recognizes every blessing is found in God's grace. They're found in his person. Ultimately, they were embodied in the person of Christ. Everything is in him. If I have you, I have everything. So my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. And then he reorients his whole understanding of current events, through history, through redemptive history, through the promises of God. And he finishes saying, you know, as for me, it's good to be near God. This one who knows that God is good but didn't care now is saying, it's really good to be in God's presence. The question is, where is your sanctuary? I hope that you are renewed in, some, in worship at times, but it's not you know, you got to come into this place. But where do you go where you can be honest before God? Where do you go where it's just you and God, where you can have a renewal of beholding God's glory, which outshines the present realities of our lives? Do you go there? When have you been there? Have you been there in a while? Because it's only when you're spending time with God and you're, you're hearing from God and you're engaging God honestly and not praying, you know, the prayers that you think that he wants to hear, but praying from your heart that you're going to experience this kind of renewal. And so I'll wrap up by saying this, asking this, how are you doing? If you're doing great, I'm delighted. Unfortunately, I hate to tell you, it's not going to last. If you're not doing so well, you know it's okay. Do you know you can be honest? Do you know that you're not alone? Do you know that you can not only tell God, but you can tell God's people, as is evidenced by the fact that Asaph wrote this as a song, and then he brought his experience into the worship place. You can tell others. If the one that you tell is the jerk who makes you feel like you've got to put on the mask, well, then go tell somebody else. Pray for them. But to experience the spiritual vitality, the emotional health that God desires us to have requires that we be authentic before him and honest with ourselves at all times. But we are reminded by Asaph that we can do that 
Because no matter how you feel and how things are going for you right now, truly, God is good. He is our refuge. He is our hope and salvation. Father, may we, your people, uh, learn that you're not expecting us to be uh, navigating this life without stumbling, but you are with us at all times, upholding us, holding our right hand. You know that we are frail and but dust and that we respond to circumstances uh, often with, with fear and worry, anxiety and anger when the reality is you are aware and working out your purposes. I pray, Lord, that we would not become, you know, a people of, that are Pollyannish, that just pretend that all is good when it's not, but that we also recognize the value that you place on honesty, on authenticity before you and even before the watching world. That regardless of where we are individually as we've come this morning, you would meet us, you would restore us, you would renew us, you would point us to your promises and to the promise that is to be fulfilled that we would have hope, and in that hope, that we would have joy. Lord, bless your people, that our hearts would overflow with gratitude and, and thankfulness and praise as we truly see again that you are good. May we share Asaph's attitude that there's nothing we desire more than you. For in you we have all. From you is every blessing. And so to you be all glory, honor, and praise. We pray in Christ. Amen.